Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. Welcome back to the book of Daniel's sermon series. Now we're on chapter four. The goal of chapter four is to warn us about the dangers of pride. There are four main ideas we hope that you walk away with. Loving the unlovable. Showing the love of a holy God to sinners who are quite unlike ourselves. The fleetingness of material gain. A lesson we all should learn from King Nebuchadnezzar's fall. That God gives and he takes away. Pride, which comes before the fall. And lastly, humility, which comes before honor. Hold on to these ideas as they're being discussed today. In this week's sermon, The Dangers of Pride, Humility. Well, you already know what it is. Daniel chapter four is where we are hanging out today. Uh, I'm just going to, you should just open your Bible and it should just flop right to Daniel because we've been in it for the last several weeks. Um, Man, even as I was holding those children, I was thinking about our children's ministry. Thank God that it is kicking back up. On Easter Sunday, you know, we started our church and we um, begin our church. I'm sorry, Gabe, if you can give this to the family for me. Um, We started our church and we had a deep desire to make sure that we were not just engaging the minds of adults and the hearts of adults, but children as well. And so when we first started, you could families could bring their, you know, from infant on up, you could bring your children into the kids room and to the infant room. And we had space for you. And it wasn't romper room. It wasn't time for them just to run around, although they're having fun. There was uh, dedicated moments that we were engaging them with the word of God on their level. Because y'all know when we bring them in here, it's just like goes right over their heads. But we're able to engage them and pray over them and pray with them and teach them scripture to memorize. And um, man, it's nothing like engaging a young mind. And I just want to encourage you guys, uh, even as we're thinking about this idea of the children's ministry starting up, I want to encourage all of you who are not serving. This is a good opportunity for you to serve. I'll never forget when I first started in ministry, my pastor, Dr. Eric Mason, um, said, well, you can't preach to the church unless you preach to the kids. So I had to go in the kids' room, and uh, I was in the kids' room serving at least once a month. Uh, Ty and I were in the kids' room, and I would, I would do my sermons there. I would be able to try to break them down on, on a kid's level, and uh, it was so formative in my development. And uh, even when we first started uh, the church here, Ty was the director over our children's ministry. Can we give Ty some love just for all of this stuff that she does? She was over our children's ministry and, um, and uh, just it, it, it's the importance of making sure we are engaging that age group. Shout out to Michelle, that is our children's ministry director. She's somewhere in here. I can't, I can't see, but... Uh, she needs help. She needs, she needs our help. And so those of you who have com- the capacity to serve, honestly, it's not a lot. If you could serve one service on one Sunday a month, that would be a blessing, meaning you can serve and then come up into service and uh, it would be a huge blessing. So uh, please, please, if you're interested in that, sh- see Michelle. Michelle, I don't know where you are. If you could just wave your hand for me. You go where There she is right there. If you could wave your hand so you can see Michelle and you can also email the, the email that Gabe told you, it'd be helpful for us to be able to, uh, to facilitate quality ministry. We don't just do nothing. We don't just put stuff together. This is, for the, this is the house of the living God. Everything we do should be excellent. 
That includes how we engage with our children. So we need you. I just wanted to put that out there. All right. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Um, Man, Rob is in the house, y'all. Stand up, Rob. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Come on. Y'all give Rob some love. Rob done moved out to L.A. He out there rubbing elbows with Tabitha Brown like so like that. I hear you, Rob. And he's doing amazing, amazing out there. And I remember the day he told me he doesn't know why he feels like God is calling him out to L.A. We were sitting down having lunch and uh, man, just to see how God in a short period of time is just like opening doors for for Rob and and, and his desires and the things that he is laying before the Lord. It's just amazing to see. So uh, it's good to have you here. All right, Daniel, we've been doing the Cuban shuffle through the book of Daniel, and it's, it's been it's been really good. Let me just give a quick recap. Daniel chapter one. Um, it's clear that these four Hebrew boys that have come and, and been brought out of um, out of Judah, out of Israel, have been brought to Babylon, that they chose to be different. First week, I said, man, look, it's our difference that makes helps us to make a difference. So we looked at what it looked like for these guys to say, man, I will not defile myself. I won't eat of the king's food. And the Bible says that God made them 10 times wiser than everybody else. All of the wise men that studied to be wise men, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, these astrologers, none of them could touch these four boys. Why? Because they chose to be different. And it was their difference that God favored them. Then even in chapter two, you saw King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. Chapter four actually starts the way chapter two did. King Nebuchadnezzar is having this dream and he can't figure out the dream. And he calls in all the wise men and nobody can figure it out. And finally, there Daniel comes in. He's like, I can figure it out because I have a God in heaven. In fact, he says it that way. There is a God in heaven. The Bible says that Daniel was able to interpret the king's dream. And in interpreting the king's dream, he said, man, there's a head of gold and the rest of the body is all these different materials. But there's a stone. And that stone is going to crush the rest of those kingdoms. And we know that that stone is the kingdom of God. Fast forward to chapter three. Chapter three, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't quick on the uptake. He didn't realize that that stone, that that statue, he was just the head of gold. So chapter three, he makes a whole image. All of it is full of gold. And he asks everybody to bow. In fact, demanded that everybody would bow down to this image. And the Bible says that there's three boys Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that refused to bow down. And in their refusal, the king was furious. He said, turn the furnace up seven times hotter. And he takes them and throws them in. And if you wasn't here last week, you missed your shouting moment. The Bible says that he looked in and saw four, even though three were thrown in. And then he said, there's four unbound. Showed how God flexed his muscles even over stuff that normally would kill you. God used it to purge the things that you were bound in. And it was in that that we got to see how God was working. And here we are in chapter four. And guess what? King Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't get it. God still has to deal with him. And so let's jump in. I think we're good. Let's let's jump in. Verse four. I'm going to talk today about the dangers of pride. Look at your neighbor and say there is a danger in being prideful. Come on, look, look at somebody else. Some, look at somebody that you think is prideful and just say, it's a danger in being, in being, pride, in being prideful. It's a danger in being prideful. We're talking about the dangers of pride. Let's pray before we dig in. Father, would you illuminate the word this morning? We can't understand this passage without you, so speak to us. Speak through me, an undone vessel, an 
unworthy candidate to be used by you. But Father, would you do something amazing today with your word? Show us Jesus. We would be in vain if we walked out of here and did not talk about Jesus. So in this ancient passage written in 540 BC, may we see Jesus. Make it applicable today. It's in Jesus' name we give glory and honor. Amen. The dangers of pride. How many in this room are 25 age, 25 and down, your age, 25 and down. Come on, I don't put those hands up high, put those hands up high. All right, a few of y'all, a few of y'all. You're not favored by God, and here's why. <laughs> here's why you're not favored by the Lord. You didn't grow up with the ability to be able to see one of the greatest, most electrifying sports phenoms of our time, and that's Iron Mike Tyson. I don't care how you feel about him in that ring. Iron Mike was something special. In fact, there was a, there was a, a period of time from 1985 to 1990 where he literally didn't lose a fight. But not only did he not lose a fight, every opponent that he had, something like 10 or 11 guys, he knocked out in a minute or less for five years straight. A minute or less. In fact, there was a there was a, a a Nintendo game named after him, Mike Tyson Punch Out. Anybody ever had that game? I couldn't beat King Hippo or Don Flamingo in that game, and it still bothers me to this day. At the peak of Mike's career, the peak of Mike's career, he was knocking people out left and right in a minute or less. He fights this unknown boxer. Nobody knew who he was, a guy by the name of uh, Buster Douglas. We know who he is now, but nobody knew who Buster Douglas was at that time. I remember my friends uh, would throw little bets out there, uh, and the bets were never against Mike. The bets were how fast he was going to knock out his next opponent. In fact, when he fought Buster Douglas, he knocked his previous opponent out in 93 seconds. And so when he gets in the ring with, with, with Buster Douglas, we all know what time it is. We know what's about to happen. But unfortunately, Mike loses and gets knocked out in the 10th round. There's a couple times in life where I feel like the, the world stood still. When I saw Mike hit the mat, I just couldn't believe I was in awe. I was flabbergasted. I could not believe it. I was, I was nine years old at the time. I could not believe it. But let, 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 let's, let's also think through when Michael Jackson died, everybody remember where you was when, when you found out Michael Jackson died? This is where we was. I was so spiritually immature, Lord, forgive me. Ty and I were on our way to Bible study, and we, I looked at her and said, babe, shouldn't they have canceled Bible study tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Michael Jackson just died. I know y'all felt like that, too. Mike Tyson gets knocked out by Buster Douglas, and he gets knocked out really for one reason and one reason alone. Because he was feeling himself because he was riding off of a season of success, riding off of a season of fame and fortune, and ultimately he was riding off of a season of pride. Success can be fatal. Success can, can, isn't always a blessing. Sometimes having too much isn't a blessing. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I said Agur's prayer was in uh, um, Proverbs 30 when he was saying, Lord, don't, 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 don't give me uh, poverty because if you give me poverty, I'm going to have to be forced to steal. But then he says, don't give me too much either because if you give me too much, I will forget about you. And for some of us in here that have been praying, God, let me be successful. God, let me be successful. God, whatever success means to you, it's a blessing that he hasn't answered it. 
Because some of us, I know, we would get a whole bunch of stuff and we would be like Mike. You know Mike was partying the night before he got knocked out of, with Buster Douglas. Why? Because he was partying because he was prideful. In our text, somebody's about to get knocked out. And here's the crazy thing. God could have knocked him out in chapter 2. But God got in the ring with him in chapter two and said, man, let me let me show you who I am. This stone is going to knock down that uh, is going to knock down that that image. But then he also shows us that God is the God that gives dreams and interprets dreams. So he flexes his muscles. That's him. Round one, beating up Nebuchadnezzar. Round two was the building of the statue and the throwing in the furnace. And God flexes his muscles again. That's God trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. In fact, he ended chapter three with a praise break. But he gets to chapter four and it is almost like he forgot that this God is in the ring with him, knocking him out, giving him ones and twos left and right. And finally, in chapter four, he's finally going to knock him out. This is the last time we're going to hear about Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter five opens up with a brand new king. But I love that we get let in on a little bit of the process of, of, of King Nebuchadnezzar's, because really what this shows us is that when it comes to spirituality and when it comes to our faith and when it comes to our connection with the Lord, how many know it's a process, not an event? I don't care if you came down to the altar and said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and you made it down to the altar and you was up, you're like, Lord, I give my life to you. And then you went out and you still was trifling. At some point, it's a process, right? We, we, we fall, we get back up. We fall. Didn't Donnie McClurkin teach us that? We fall, we get back up. And I think what we'll see in chapter four is Nebuchadnezzar is going to make a foolish mistake again, but the end of the chapter does end with some good health, and I think it's a good teachable moment for all of us in this room. So, so we're, we're now in this round in chapter four where he's about to get knocked out, I mean, for good, for, like cold, for good this time. So won't you pick me up in chapter four? Pick me up in verse four. By the way, just really quickly, note that you're going to see in the same sentence, often you'll see Daniel's name and then you'll see Belteshazzar. It is not two different people. Daniel is, the, is his Hebrew name and Belteshazzar is the name that King Nebuchadnezzar gave him when he came to Babylon. So it's, it's the same person. If you're confused by that, think Childish Gambino and Donner Glover. Same person. Same person. All right. Verse four. I'm going to do a lot of reading, but y'all just y'all, y'all, y'all lock in. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make it known to me or its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. It says, he who was named Belteshazzar, the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the, of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. He's going to give him the dream now. The vision in my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. 
And the tree grew and became strong and the top reached the heavens and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. It, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And it was good. It was uh, it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw the vision in my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher. Don't miss this. A holy one came down from heaven and he proclaimed with a loud voice, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Don't miss this. If you have a if you write in your Bible, please underline verse 15 because it's going to show up two more times. But leave the stump of its root in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast mind be given to him. And seven periods of time, that's seven years, seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the Holy One to the end of the to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest men. This dream I Nebuchadnezzar saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me. The interpretation make known to me the interpretation but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods live in you. Do not miss verse 19. In fact, we'll stop here. Verse 19 says, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not this dream interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. If, if you notice here, the, the king uh, really opens up chapter four the same way he opened up chapter two. And in chapter two, he was having this dream. Same thing in chapter four. He's having this dream that he can't sleep that's bothering him. So he calls the astrologers and the Chaldeans and all the wise men, all the Babylonian wise men. He calls them together. They can't figure out the dream again. So finally, he calls Daniel because he said he has the spirit of the gods. That he really has the spirit of the God in him. And so he says, I'm going to tell you the dream and I need you to interpret the dream for me. He said, I saw this tree and it was so huge. It's top touched heaven and it's it was it's width was the whole earth. But then he says in a plot twist that a watcher or a holy one came down and he chopped up the tree and the, and the fruit scattered and all of the beasts scattered and the birds were scattering. And the Bible says that he took the man or the tree and he made him have a beast mind. In other words, he made him lose his mind. He made him go crazy. He made him go insane. And after he hears this dream, the Bible says that Daniel is dismayed. The, the Bible says that Daniel is, these thoughts alarm him so much so that he says back to the king, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation be for your enemies. Daniel did not want this to happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. I was baffled this week when I read this. Daniel didn't want this to happen. Don't miss this. Daniel's a refugee. Daniel's in exile brought there by the man that he just said, don't let this happen to you. Let, 
this happen to one of your enemies. Daniel is showing us that he is starting to grow in his affections for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is starting to grow in his love for a Babylonian king. This statement is not Daniel trying to curry some favor to get a promotion. Notice Daniel gets promotions because he's faithful to God, not because he's sucking up to the boss. So so he's, he's, he's not trying to get a promotion right now. He genuinely does not want this to happen to the king. In fact, he wants the king to live and he wants it to happen to somebody else. Daniel loves the king. And maybe King Nebuchadnezzar was a great guy. I have no clue. Maybe just over time, he began to get fond of the king. Maybe King Nebuchadnezzar was a very caring, whatever the case may be. Daniel, a Hebrew, loved a Babylonian king. And I think sometimes we read this and it goes over our head. But really what Daniel is doing, Rob, Daniel is fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah told the people in exile in Jeremiah 29, look, when y'all get in exile, this is what God wants y'all to do. God wants y'all to build houses and live in them. He wants y'all not to complain. He wants y'all to put gardens in the ground and eat of its produce. Give your children and your sons and your daughters in marriage. And then he finally says, seek the welfare of the city. Because in its welfare, you'll find your own. We quote that a lot here. But do you know that Jeremiah was talking to Daniel's age, that to Daniel's people, the people that were in exile, Daniel is embodying this. He loves the king from a genuine place of affection. I forgot to tell you, the king loved him back. How do I know that? Because when he was telling him, the Bible says that the king says to Daniel, Belteshazzar, let not this dream alarm you. There was mutual affection. And and, and I just I have a question that's a rhetorical question that I just want you to ponder and consider. How are you doing loving the Babylonians around you? I'm talking about the people that don't love your Jesus. I'm talking about the people that get on your nerves. I'm talking about the family members around you. I'm talking about the people that you had an issue with and y'all fell out years ago. I'm talking about people that, 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 that you just don't, you ain't feeling. How are you doing loving those people? Earlier this week, we were in this room and we were doing Bible study. And we were talking about uh, having the Holy Spirit and indwelling versus uh, being filled with the Spirit. And we went to Galatians 5 and we started to read, what are the fruit of the Spirit? And when we were reading the fruit of the Spirit, do you know that one of the fruit, not, not one, the first is love. And it doesn't give us a disclaimer on who to love. It just says love. That means love people that are lovable and love people that are not lovable. Love people that look like you and love people that don't look like you. Love people that don't miss this. Love Jesus but also love people that don't love Jesus. Many of us are so, so, so guilty. We're so guilty of only loving people when they can extend love back to us that's selfish. You need to love somebody that can't give that love back to you. And you never know. It is love that covers a multitude of sin. You never know. It is God's kindness that brought you to repentance. You never know what that kindness and that love will do. The king loved Daniel and Daniel loved the king. And I just got to say this, I got to say this in this room, because a lot of us, and and nobody, listen, nobody is prouder to be black than me. Black pride all, I love our food, I love our culture, I love our music, I I love our style, I love all of that. But if your black pride equals white hate, you are ignorant. You hear me? You are foolish. If you're black, and you're ungodly, and you're not walking in the spirit because the fruit of the spirit is... Come on now. Daniel loves the king and the king don't look like Daniel. Ah, 
Pastor B, you can't, you know, I, I ain't feeling that because you know the history of this country. Can I give you the history of Babylon right now? Do you realize that King Nebuchadnezzar would have been responsible for killing many uh, of the people in Israel as he, were take, as he was taking Daniel? Let me go deeper. Do you realize in the last chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for throwing in Daniel's friends to kill them? Yet you, wrote, you fast forward to chapter four and what do you see happening? Daniel loves the king. And many of us have painted people with a broad, with a broad stroke. But you better get in community with somebody that don't look like you, don't vote like you, and don't think like you. And love people that love you and people that don't love you. That means love people that love Jesus and love these people that don't love Jesus the same way. And don't treat the people over here like projects that need to be fixed. God don't work through that. God works when you genuinely have affections for people. And so the Bible says that Daniel was like, no, king, please don't let this happen to you. Let this happen to your enemies. Let this happen to somebody else. Let, th let this happen to another nation, another king, because Daniel loves the unlovable. Many of you in this room need to learn to love people that are not part of your clique and community. Many are so cliquish. We got to learn to love people. And some of you right now, you're thinking about that one person. Ah, oh, man, I ain't loved them well. And for many of us, it's a family member that you ain't talked to in a long time, that you ain't feeling because they did you wrong, somebody that really grieved you. And I don't, I listen, I don't, I don't want to make light of your situation. Some of you probably need to go through therapy. You need to go through counseling. You need to really have a restoration plan in place so that you can actually work through restoration. And love doesn't mean we're going to be friends again. Love don't mean you coming over my house. But I, there are some people I think it's okay to love from afar. But you still got to love. So Daniel loves King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar loves him. Belteshazzar, let not this dream tr trouble you. Oh, king, let this king die. Imagine this. A Babylonian king. Let, let not this dream be for you, but let it be for somebody else. Now notice this. Daniel's love for King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't allow Daniel to tolerate Nebuchadnezzar's disobedience, defiance, and pride against his God. He doesn't let that happen. In fact, the opposite happens. His love for him makes him plead with the king to repent. Look at verse 20. He's going to now interpret the dream for him. He said, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant and in which was food for all under which the beast of the field found shade in those branches and the birds of the heavens lived. Here it is. It is you. So we now, we now know that this dream is about Neb. It says, O king, uh, who have grown to become strong, your greatness has grown and reached the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Here it is again. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be with the dew of heaven and let uh, let his portion be with the beast of the field. Here it is again. No, no, no. Yeah. And seven uh, periods of time pass over. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the most high which has come upon my Lord, the king, 
that you should be driven among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You should be made to eat grass like an ox. You should be wet with the dew of heaven and the seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it will be commanded, here it is again, to leave the stump of the root of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you in that time. And you shall know that the heaven, uh, heaven's rule. Verse 27 is what I wanted to get to. Therefore, O king, let, not my counsel, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here it is. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. He just told the king, the dream is about you. That tree that you saw, that's about you. The losing of the mind and you becoming having the mind of a beast is about you. But watch this. The dream is conditional. It is conditioned on whether you will, you will repent. So verse 27, he says it very clearly. Lord, he says, my Lord, he says, break off your sins and practice righteousness and your iniquities by showing uh, mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps be a lengthening of your day days. Daniel just told the most powerful man in the world whom he loved, repent. And I love this because what this shows us is Love is never an acceptance or an intolerance of your friend's dysfunction. Don't miss this. Because a lot of times what we do with love is we make love this thing where I don't want to judge you, so I love you, so do you. You know, live your truth. Do whatever it is that you want to do. Go ahead and let your hair down. Now, the devil is a liar because I, I want, I want to, to be made well with God, not to feed my flesh. And a lot of us have watched our friends go down a path of sin and we haven't said anything because we want to remain friends. And you call it love when real love is verse 27. King, repent of your sins. Walk away from this thing that you are calling dysfunction and pride. Many of us are guilty. Watch this of loving people to hell. Many of us. And we do it because we don't want to mess up Thanksgiving. And we do it because we don't mess up the relationship. But you would rather me be tell you about your wrong than God have to tell you about your wrong. You would rather be offended by me than have to stand before the Lord. And many of us, that's what we need. You need two things. Number one, you need the boldness to be able to tell your friends, not strangers. It's weird. to Notice, Daniel doesn't check the king until chapter four. He didn't check him in chapter one when he first got there. There was a relationship that was built. And over time, he carried enough favor with the king that he could say, king, repent of this sin. And many of us need two things. Number one, you need the boldness to tell your friends you're wrong. But you also need to give somebody else access to tell you when you're wrong. You need somebody in your life that say, you, you know, I was, I was watching your social media. You know you're lying, right? We, we need somebody to call us out on our gossip. We, we need somebody that will tell us, yo, you're being real two-faced with them right now. We need somebody to tell us when we are being unkind. We need a Daniel in our life. Somebody that will love us enough not to pat us in our sin, not to say, go ahead and just do you. I know it was a hard season. Go ahead and do you. The devil's a liar. I want to be right with God, and I need friends that help me get on track, not friends that tolerate my sin. Come on, you can thank God for friends. And sometimes we have to give people the access in our life to do that. Like you have to give people permission. 
And the closer they get, the more they'll see the dysfunction. Just be clear. Like many of y'all in this room, you know, some of y'all I know really, really well. Some of y'all I don't know well. And the ones I don't know well, it is very easy to get this idea that I actually live up to each sermon all the time. But the people that get closer and closer to your life know there's a disconnect between what you say and what you do. And their one job in your life is to help the sanctification process along. And how do they help the sanctification process along by saying, yo, bro, what you doing? Sis, what you doing? All of us need a Daniel in our life that will be honest with us. Daniel challenges the king, but he does it in love. And by the way, let me just say that again. In love, nobody wants to tolerate you chewing me up. You telling me off. Nobody wants to tolerate that. There's a way you can tell somebody they're wrong and do it in love, and they'll feel deeply convicted by it. But oftentimes, we let our tone be the offense. I'd rather the, be, the offense be the spirit of God than the tone that I took with you. So the Bible says that he interprets the dream to him. He says, look, if you don't get it right, you the tree. You're going to be chopped down. Them, trims gonna, them, them, them limbs are going to be trimmed. Everything that's underneath you is going to be taken from you. And by the way, you will go from the mind of a human being to the mind of a beast. Now, you would think that Nebuchadnezzar would have a praise break here, too. You would think he'd say, oh, God, the God of heaven, and, you know, you think he'd go right in and you think that this is the moment he would get it together. Watch what happens a year later. There's a year between verse 27 and verse 29. It says, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, look at this pride. Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as the royal residence and for, the glory, for my glory and majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth. It says there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. It says to you, it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And for seven periods, seven years uh, shall pass over until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Watch this word immediately. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven amongst men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails grew like bird claws. Notice this here. Daniel gives the interpretation. He says, OK, it's conditional, though. This dream will pass over if you repent. He doesn't repent. A year later, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace and he starts to look and gaze over Babylon. And he say, look at this Babylon. Watch this that I created with my might and my power. And while he, he didn't even finish the sentence, while he was still talking, God took the kingdom from him like he took a toy from a kid's hands. In the moment, in the instant, in one instant, he lost his money, his position his title, and his mind, all because of pride. Here's the thing. He got warning after warning after warning. Chapter two, he got a warning. Chapter three, he got a warning. Finally, in chapter four, God says no more. Can I stop here for a second? That scared me this morning when I read it because I realized that many of us don't know that we're walking in disobedience to God, and there always comes a point 
after he sends warnings and sends warnings, and that warning might be people, that warning might be you in this room right now, hearing the word of God, he always sends warnings. But you know what? When we ignore them, there always comes a point where he says, no more. That, that scares your boy. That, listen, I, I ain't joking. I really love Jesus. Like, I don't, like the thought of him saying, no more. And many of us, you know, you think you're still in chapter two. But chapter four of your life is creeping up where God is not going to tolerate the stuff he tolerated in chapter two. It's coming up where God is not going to tolerate what he tolerated in chapter three. Many of us are moving closer and closer to chapter four where God says enough. After all of these years of ignoring God, finally, God is like, knockout. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of you. That's my fear this morning, but you should look up to heaven right now. Just like literally look up and just say, Lord, help me know when to repent. Like up to heaven. Like help me know when to repent. Because the worst thing is when you go through sin and there is no conviction. It's nothing worse than going through a life in a cycle of disobedience to God. That's judgment. See, what's crazy with this chapter is to knock King Nebuchadnezzar down. God didn't have to punch him. All he had to do was let him go. And that's my fear in this room is that God is at the point where he's holding on to you. But because you refuse to submit your life to him, he's going to let you go. And when he does, the kingdom is taken from you. And when he does, wealth is taken from you. And when he does, your mind is taken from you. That's what you see happening in the text. God broke down King Nebuchadnezzar simply by letting him go. He made him a beast. Remember the text was saying under the tree was all of these beasts eating from the tree? He, it, it's almost like he made it reverse. He made him become an animal. Let me go deeper. God, it's just popped in my mind. Think about the flow and the hierarchy chain in Genesis. There's God, there's man, there's serpent. The dysfunction of sin caused the serpent to be on top. And cause Adam and Eve to be in the middle. And then they look down on God. Because what happens is sin is temporary insanity. Notice he loses his mind. Sin is a momentary lapse of judgment, which we would call foolishness. It's foolishness on steroids. Y'all know I'm telling the truth. Do me a favor. Why don't y'all go ahead and look back in your phone and look at somebody you used to date and tell me you wasn't temporarily insane. Look at your Facebook. Go look them up. I know you don't follow them because you don't want them to you know all in your business. Go follow. Go look at they. Go look at their life, and I bet you you'll be like, God, I thank you, because sin is temporary insanity. Not that all relationships are sin, but sin is temporary insanity. And in this text, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the kingdom, ate grass. That's that messes me up. That he had the dew of heaven on him, meaning he was sleeping outside. His hair grew like eagle's feathers. His nails grew like claws. First of all, hair growing like eagle's feathers sounds like most of the kids I see on the train today. His hair just grow. Just grow. But in the text, King Nebuchadnezzar's hair grows out of, the, out of control. And it's not a result of no shave November. It is a result of unrepentance. It, it is a result of judgment. It is a result of disobedience. And I, I, I love you enough in this room to tell you, I'm telling you, there becomes a moment where God takes your mind and will switch it if you don't get right with God. Let me put more Bible here. Romans chapter one, verse 22. Here's what Paul will say. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
Don't underestimate. I love it. When y'all feel something, y'all like, mmm. <laughs> but at the end, at the root of what, 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 what Nebuchadnezzar, is, Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with is pride. Somebody say pride. 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 pride will mess you up. I told the tech team to put this up. Pride does two things. Number one, pride is a failure to see that everything that we have comes from God. Let me say that again. Write that down. Pride, y'all put that up, tech room. Pride is a failure to see that everything we have comes from God. Do you understand that many of us are walking in pride and we don't know it? And the way we're walking in pride is because you think that your bank account is really yours. You, you like everything, everything, what you got on. I don't want to take your hard work from you. I know you worked hard. I get it. I know you grinded. But let me just promise you that in your mother's womb, when God was knitting you together, he put the chromosomes, he put the, the knowledge, the wisdom, he put the grind in the womb. And so you're able now to grind and you'll go look at the Babylon my, built by my mighty power. No, it wasn't. It was built by God that created you and gave you the kingdom. And so pride is a failure to see that everything we have comes from God. And this is why I don't understand, you know, stingy Christians. It's actually an oxymoron to me. Because one of the ways you combat pride, Rob, is by generosity. Because generosity says, everything I have is God's, and he's gracious enough to allow me to keep some of it. I got to give him. I got to break him off some. And what happened, I promise you, this is not a sermon. I'm going to go look at the tithes and offering and see if it went up. That's not that type of a sermon. But I will say that people that have been so rocked by the gospel, the gospel at the core of it is for God so loved the world that he gave. And because he gave, I now want to be generous. And so I, I have no framework, no framework for somebody that gets their check and says, it's all mine. You're walking on top of the royal palace saying, look at Babylon built by my mighty power. I have no framework for people that use their time for so many other things and don't give any time to the Lord. When is the last time you helped somebody else? When is the last time you served somebody else? When is the last time you saw somebody in need and said, I'm going to be the one to fulfill that need because I might be the answer to their prayers. When is the last time we did that? You're walking on the roof. We're going, look at mighty Babylon that was built by me. So number one, the root of pride. Pride is the failure to see that everything we have comes from God. Write this one down. Pride is the foolish assumption that comfort and wealth last forever. Nebuchadnezzar was so foolish that, to think that nobody could take the kingdom. Do you know that Babylon would have had a wall around it, which would have stretched 56 miles. At some points, the wall would have been up to 300 feet high. It was, it was impenetrable. You, you couldn't just get in and take the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar. But God does in one moment... What any other massive nation or army could not do. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was foolishly assuming that comfort and wealth lasted forever. You have to know something about all that you have. It does, it's all fleeting. All of it. Do you know that you can be rocked today with one phone call? One phone call could change the tra trajectory of your life. One bad diagnosis could change the trajectory of your life. One bad decision let the market collapse. We'd all be in trouble. But the stuff that we have is all fleeting. And many of us are walking in pride because we think it's going to last forever. Nothing lasts forever except the kingdom of God. Give to something that's eternal. Put your hope in something that's eternal. I don't care how fat your bank account is. It is fleeting. 
And at any moment, notice this text here. Please don't miss this. I, don't miss this. There's other stuff in here and I got to move on. But don't miss the fact that God was able to take it. You know, Job says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The fact that God was able to take it means under God's control is your wealth, is your title and your mind. And if you woke up this morning and got any money in the account, it's because God gave it to you. If you woke up this morning in your right mind, it's because God gave it to you. And some of us should be plumb crazy right now. The stuff we done went through, we done came through pandemics, and we done seen sickness, and we done seen death, and we sitting on our therapist's couch and, and, and asking for help, and you got your right mind because God gave you the right mind. You ought to praise God for a good mind. Everything you have, poof, could be gone. One phone call. And in one text message. Now, here's what's so interesting in this text. I told you to underline it, but three times, verse 15, verse 23, and verse 26. He says, leave the stump of the root. Why would you leave the stump of the root? You only leave the stump of the root when you have the expectation that I'm going to restore the tree. It's the only time you would do that. If God wanted to, he wouldn't have said cut down the tree. He would have said uproot the tree. But he doesn't uproot the tree because he says after a seven period time, I'm going to restore even a Babylonian king. Not a follower of me, not somebody that loved me, but I'm so gracious. I'm going to give him back what I took from him. And so in this restoring, look, look, in fact, let me read it. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. And, and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. Jump down to verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. Don't miss this. And still more greatness was added to me. Now watch this praise break. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for his works are right and his ways are just. This should help us and humble us today. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God left the stump in the dream because leaving the stump and its roots means after this, after this seven years, I'm going to restore him back. Notice something. John Calvin says it best. John Calvin says Nebuchadnezzar's ins insanity alone didn't wake him up. It was the spirit of the living God to give him eyes to see. Yeah. And some of you that are in this room, you're at the point where you feel chopped down by the Lord. And maybe you are. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're in that season where, where you feel like God is taking from you. But here's what I know. If you're in verse 27 and you repent, the kingdom can be restored. Because the stump and the roots of your life have not been uprooted. They're, they're still there. And I know for a fact that somebody walked in this room today and for the last six to seven months, you have been feeling chopped down. You have been feeling like you've been in the ring, not with Mike Tyson, but with God. And you've been getting these hands from God and boom, boom, and you feel like you're ready to get knocked out. But really what God is trying to do is get your attention. Because here's what I know. How long, how much longer do you want to suffer? How much longer do you want to go through? How many more rounds in the ring do you want to go with God? At some point, you need to say, God, restore this, this, this stump in my life. 
Restore these roots in my life. Well, Pastor B, how do, I, how do I do that? How do I get to the point of restoration? Jesus is how. Watch this. The king in the text gets driven in the wilderness like a beast because of pride. But there's another king later on that will get driven in the wilderness. And that king doesn't go in because of pride. He goes in because of humility. What, what is humility? Humility to Father's will. What is the Father's will? To restore the stump of your life. To restore the roots in your life. And I believe that somebody in this room knows exactly who I'm talking to. You, you know exactly who I'm talking to. And God ain't mad. He just wants you to get it right. I, it feels, I know, it's, I know you're dealing with a lot, but you might just be getting a spanking. I would much rather get a spanking from God than be under God's wrath. They're different. Spanking and discipline is, is different than God's wrath. God's wrath is eternal punishment. We don't, as believers, we don't get eternal punishment. But he does give us spankings. I believe that somebody in this room has been walking in unintentional pride. I simply lift up King Nebuchadnezzar's last words to you. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. But even the ones he humbles, Tasha, gets restored. I want to pray for somebody today. Somebody that's in need of restoration. Somebody that's been going through the last seven years. You've been feeling like you're losing your mind. You've been feeling like God has been taking and not robbing, but taking back what's his from you. Because you refuse to acknowledge him. I don't want to beat you up today. I want to help you to see that you can be restored. Because God loves you. Do you know that there's a verse in 1 John? It says it best. It says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. There is somebody in this room that's in need of that restoration. And here's here's what's crazy. It's available for you this morning. I want to call us down to the altar to pray. But before I call anybody down to pray and you know who I'm talking to. But those of you that are going to come down, please know that coming to the altar is the start, not the ending. Because oftentimes we'll be like, if I just get to the altar, then I'm good. But you'll still mess up when you leave. You'll still have hardship when you leave. But I believe that if we acknowledge God before men, he says, I'll acknowledge you before my father. Somebody today needs to be restored. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Look, we ain't got a lot of time. It's, I know it's a little cold outside, but it ain't raining. So I know y'all want to get out and go to brunch. Can y'all just come down here and pray? Those are who, who, who need who need prayer and want to be restored, and you know I'm talking to you. Do me a favor. Run down to this altar so we can pray. I know it's a lot of people in here that might be embarrassing. But who is that one? Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. That will say, it's me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. We just needed a few to pump the prime. Thank you for coming, bro. Come on down. I see those tears. Come on down. Come on down. Listen, you can get it right today. We don't, we don't have to walk under God's punishment. You don't have to. You can be restored today. Today. He says, the day you hear my voice, harden not your heart. And when they're on this altar crying, and I know that there's somebody else. You know, when, when, the, when the kingdom was restored to Nebuchadnezzar, it's so interesting that Nebuchadnezzar did not have the ability to seek God. He needed that given to him. 
And there's somebody in this room, the Bible says in Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. Somebody that God is enlightening your heart right now. Today's the day for restoration. Father, I thank you for each and every person that's on this altar. These are sons and daughters of you. These are people who have some professed faith in you. And they're all acknowledging that they need you today. We cannot experience restoration apart from you. And so, Father, would you restore the years that the canker worm has stolen? Would you restore the things that you've taken? And not for our glory, but because we want to be better stewards of the things that you've given us. And we want to be like Neb at the end of this chapter where he extols you and he praises you and he gives you glory. And he gets to a point of realization that only you can bring down prideful people. So, Father, I pray, oh God, for the hurt and for the pain and for the bad decisions and for the wrong turns. Father, you love us so much. You give us you gave us this opportunity to be restored. And so, Father, I pray that you would do a work in the lives of these young ladies and these young men. That they would be lights, that they would be beacons, that they would be salt in the earth. And that this moment wouldn't just be a moment that happened in service, but this would be a moment that transformed and made the stump grow again. That this would be the moment. Father, you didn't have to let the root stay. But you did because you're gracious. Because you're good. Because you're kind. You restore broken people. You restore broken people. You restore broken people. You ain't mad at us. You ain't upset with us. You love us so much that you restore broken people. And I thank you, oh God, that no matter what it is that we are coming to this altar with, none of it you are in heaven ashamed about. None of it is more powerful than your cross. None of it has more power over this moment. Father, I pray that you would breathe something new in our lives. Everybody that's on this altar, may they walk different. And may they not walk on the roof with swag like they built it, but may they now say, God, you built everything. You get everything. I give you full glory and full honor because you're the only one that deserves it. So, Father, I pray that the work that you were doing here wouldn't stop here, but this would be the beginning of a lifelong process of being restored. Because restoration is never an event. It's a process. And so put in the lives of these young men and these young ladies, godly people. Those people that I was saying in verse 27 that could help us to walk right with you. That could help us to align with you. Father, would you put us in relationships like that? For your glory and for your honor. We do not want the stump to, to grow back because of us. We want it to grow back because of you. So do the work that only you can do. None of us can do Only you can do it. It's in Jesus' mighty and gracious name we pray. Let everybody say amen. amen. Come on, let's thank God for these that came down to the altar. I see you, sis. You may be, go back to your seat. You never know what people are dealing with. Never know. And I believe that some of you, Colin, I'm going to let you take over. I believe that some of you that didn't come down, it's okay. But I just, I believe that God still wants to do a work in your life. You shouldn't leave today without talking to somebody. 
somebody that you see up here singing, playing, somebody you see serving. Hospitality team is a great place. Yolanda's over here. Wave your hand, Yolanda. Talk to somebody today because God loves you and he wants the stump to be restored.